Hey, just a heads up. The episode you're about to listen to is about the platform directed by Galder Gaztelu Urrutia and written by David De Sola and Pedro Rivera. Some relevant trigger warnings for this movie include violence, gore, cannibalism, suicide, nudity, on-screen defecation and urination, discussions of and implications of sexual assault and rape, racism, Islamophobia, and tinnitus. And our hosts rank this movie as terrifying and extremely disconcerting. If you'd like to learn more about the movie discussed this evening, please visit our website, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, for show notes and a transcript. After the spooky music, we'll talk about the movie in full, so be forewarned, there will be spoilers. Now, let's get on to the show. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we own horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the Spanish post-apocalyptic sci-fi horror film, The Platform. I am your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and cinebites. Ben is off, so tonight joining me, as always, we have the cinnamon roll of Cenobites, our co-host, Emily Martin. How are you tonight, Emily? I'm remembering those beautiful saccharine days of Requiem for a Dream and remembering fondly how that was a, a movie about, like, stuff people did that they may have had some agency in. Yeah. And spoilers, nobody ate anybody in that movie. Not that I saw, but who knows what goes on off screen in that movie. Yeah, uh, director's cut. And our special guest tonight, one of our long friends and multiple time guests, comic artist and my collaborator on School for Extraterrestrial Girls, Jamie Noguchi. Welcome Hello. back, Jamie. Hello. Back. I'm so glad to be able to talk to other people about this movie because I, when I watched this, no one else had seen it and no one around me was interested when I told them what it was about. So, like, it has sat with me for a while and has fucked me up for a very long time. So thank you for inviting me on. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I watched it last October during like my whole marathon of scary movies. And uh, I, I was in the same position where I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, let me go ahead and say like, uh, it is directed by uh, Galder Gastello Urrutia. <laughs> the writers of the story and screenplay are David Sola. Uh, the screenplay is co-written by Pedro Rivero. Uh, it stars Ivan Masagwe, Zorian Gellior, Antonia San Juan, Emilio Boale, and Alexandra Masangai Masanke. Okay, so I literally wrote on the notes here. Look, let's not fuck around. <laughs> An extremely on the nose, but somehow still very effective metaphor about capitalism and humanity and how fucked up things are. And despite being really on the nose, like, it's still happy to have its characters draw direct comparisons to the social issues that it's about. And somehow it still works. So yeah. mm -hmm. I think my favorite thing about this is we find out that halfway through this place that's re repeatedly referred to as the pit is actually known as the Vertical Self-Management Center or <laughs> VSC. It is a vertical prison. We get this brief interlude at the beginning of fancy chefs making very fancy food. There's like classical instruments being played to them making it. There's a, you know, guy going around inspecting all the food. And then we meet our main character, Goreng, who wakes up in a cement room with the number 48 on the wall. 
In the middle of the room is a big square hole. On either side is a bed, one for him and one for his roommate, Trimagasi, who is an older man, gradually explains the situation to Gareng. Trimagasi, fan-fucking-tastic. Oh, yeah. I love this character. He's the worst and also the best. <laughs> He's kind of what makes this movie work in a lot of ways. He's really our everyman for this, because, like, Gorang is a, he's a nice person. <laughs> and Trimagasi is not. Yeah. yeah, he's about he's right in the middle road there, considering like once you realize what the average is, <laughs> you're like, oh, oh, OK. Anyway, continue, yeah. please. Yeah. Uh, so they are in a prison that uh, Trimagasi knows to have at least 140 some floors. At the, at the end of every month, they switch floors, but keep the same roommates until one of them dies or finishes their sentence in this prison. Every day, a meal is prepared and sent on, set on the center platform at the top. And it gradually lowers to each floor, and they have a small portion of time to eat, and then it keeps on lowering to the next floor. If you try to take and keep anything, your room either gets super hot and super cold until you die or throw it back. The thing continues down to the floors as you go. The problem is nobody on the upper floors takes an even portion and leaves enough for everybody else to eat. They rifle through, they eat it, they spit things out on the table, uh, they climb on everything. Trimagasi is a particularly interesting picture of, of what's wrong with all of this, as he eats everything he can, shatters the glass wine bottles into the food when he's done, and spits and pisses into the food at various points in this movie, uh, saying that uh, I, when I think is the most important thing that's said in the movie, that he assumes the people above probably do the same thing. And he curses them for it. He calls them, you know, bastards. And that's why he does it, because those people probably also do it to him. And he knows the people below are going to do it to the other people. So why why should he be any different? Um, it's trickle down. It's what they call trickle down. It is. It's literal trickle down. <laughs> literal trickle down. Goring tries to connect with the people above and below him. But Chumagasi is like, don't talk to the people below because they're below you. And the people above will not listen. And we learn that everybody gets to bring one item into this place. And the two items of these, these main characters here tie very importantly into their origin stories. Gareng chose to come here for six months with the objective of quitting smoking, uh, finally reading Don Quixote, which is his one item he brings with him, and uh, that he will get a degree after six months in here. Jermagasi, on the other hand, got sent here because he was given the option of this or a mental institution uh, because he saw an infomercial for a knife sharpener, which made knives sharp enough to cut through bricks. He eventually decided uh, that not having a knife sharpener must be what's wrong with his life and why it's so shitty. So he bought it. Uh, the sharpener is called the Samurai Max. Uh, he immediately saw an infomercial with the same people selling a knife that never needs to be sharpened called the Samurai Plus. Uh, and this made him so angry that he ripped his TV off the wall and threw it out the window. And in doing so, Hit and killed an illegal immigrant on a bicycle, an act for which he has no contrition and blames the victim. He brought the knife with him, the Samurai Plus knife with him, as his one item. It continues to get sharper as he carves tallies into the walls, which is going to be an important thing to note later on. They continue on like this for a, for a while until one day we uh, meet Miharu, a woman who is writing the platform down. Shimagasi tells us that she's looking for her child. 
She doesn't really say anything. And as long as they leave her alone, she leaves them alone. Goring wants to help her. Uh, Maharu is promptly attacked by the guys on the next floor, pulled off the platform, quickly murders her attacker, and then goes back to the platform. It is implied <laughs> she's been doing this for quite some time. We also, during the toward the end of this first month, see a lot of people committing suicide by jumping from the upper floors, uh, you know, down into the hole. Uh, because they don't know where they're going to end up next month and they have nothing to look forward to after being on the upper floors. He denies it at this point, but it's heavily implied that Trimagasi survived his stint in the 140s by killing and eating his roommate. And shortly thereafter, they are gassed and wake up on level 171. Uh, Garang wakes up to find he has already been tied to his bed by Trimagasi, who says he doesn't want to hurt him, but Garang is stronger and younger than him. And eventually it's going to come down to them fighting and he doesn't want to lose. So he promises not to mutilate him yet. It is all the part where at some point he basically admits to having killed and eaten part of his roommate. And Gareng says, you're a murderer. And in another one of Chimagasi is really like telling things. He says, no, I'm not a murderer. I am someone who is frightened, which is again on the nose, but like fucking incredible. <laughs> yeah. 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 So Finally, that day comes after being tied up for several days. Shimagasi decides that he's going to have to start cutting strips off of Garang. He does offer to go ahead and feed Garang some of it um, so that, you know, both of them can survive. Uh, he's in the process of doing this when Maharu arrives again, smashes Shimagasi over the head with a bottle and then stabs him. She cuts Garang free. Garang goes ahead and finishes the job, stabbing and killing Shimagasi. And Maharu slowly nurses him back to health by bandaging his wounds and feeding him pieces of Shimagasi over the next several days before getting then back on the platform and disappearing. And Garang survives the last couple of days by eating the maggots off of Shimagasi's rotting body as he continues to see Shimagasi talking to him in this room. He does survive the month. He is gassed again and ends up on floor 33 with his new roommate, a woman named Imugiri. Imugiri is uh, the woman who took his application when he first came. So she's been working for the company for years and she's become aware that the system is broken, but due to her own impending death by cancer, has decided that she's going to try and fix it from the inside by entering herself and starting a revolution. Uh, she has brought her sausage dog, Ramses II, in a truly irresponsible move. Oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> she decides she's going to start making up plates for the people below and assisting that they only eat their one serving and make up servings for the people below. And she's going to do this by badgering them to death <laughs> uh, in, in hopes that eventually everybody on what she is certain and says she knows for sure are 200 floors in this place. This woman has worked for this thing. She knows there are only 200 floors in here. The people below refuse to do this until Garang seemingly just gets tired of hearing her say it over and over and finally insists they're either going to do it or he's going to shit in their food every day. So <laughs> they they start making some change after that. And Garang insists to her that change never happens spontaneously. And it, it really takes people having to eat shit to change uh -huh. it and make them band together. Mm -hmm. One day, Hotaru comes in again on the platform, injured and unconscious. Miharu. Uh, Oh, yeah. That's, so Tara is uh, Sailor Saturn. <laughs> yes, my... Sorry. Their names are changing as I go. Uh, no, um, injured and unconscious. Gring gets her off the uh, platform and bandages her up and gives her his bed. Meanwhile, they almost die because the fucking dog squirrels away some food while they're paying attention That fucking dog. It's not the dog's fault. <laughs> it's her fault for fucking bringing her dog with, with her. her fault. Yeah. The dog is doomed from Jump Street. Oh, my God. Seriously. And then, like... 
yeah and the second i saw that dog i'm like either the yeah. dog's going downstairs or the dog is not like she's got cancer the dog doesn't so yeah let the dog alone yeah the dog to a friend <laughs> yeah let the dog eat one of the dead people yeah this is uh truly truly irresponsible and this is the part where the dog bites it because Mahari is not putting up with this bullshit and kills the dog in the middle of the night and almost ends up fighting with Imaguri uh, before, the, you know, she goes ahead and leaves the next day on the platform again off to find her child. But Imaguri insists that she checked Maharu in when she first came in and that she was alone and did not come here with a child. That she was, in fact, wanting to be the Asian Marilyn Monroe and was doing this to lose weight beforehand. Some racism in this movie, you guys. Yeah. Some people saying some racist stuff. But also, if she came in alone, it implies other things about where the baby may have come from. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that is never expounded upon. They don't say Uh, it, but... Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, so obviously having lost your dog, Amiguri is inconsolable for the last few days together before they are gassed again and wake up on floor 202. <laughs> Further down than Amiguri, thought existed in this prison, and it is difficult to tell how far down below that it goes. Gring is trying to count them by seeing how long it takes the elevator to come back up. She, on the other hand, has hung herself before he even wakes up. Presumably to save him from having to do it or from her starving. He spends the month getting by eating pieces of her and also Don Quixote. He, he does eat chunks of his book, Fiber, yeah. while talking to the ghosts of both of his dead roommates. This is a particularly rough section of the movie. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Finally, he's gassing and wakes up on level six with a new roomie, the optimistic and excitable Baharat, who has a rope. And a plan to climb out by getting the people above to help him. The couple in the room above agree to do so. But when he starts climbing, they shit on him. And he uh, drops the rope down the hole. He is barely saved by Gorang, who grabs him just before he falls into the hole. And he, he loses the rope and his sense of optimism. Immediately. <laughs> yes, yes. As he should. <laughs> well. Yeah, I mean, he did literally get shit on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the people above him. Gring uh, gets a visit from Chimagasi, who uh, congratulates him because this is the month before his last one. He only has to make it through one more month after this. Even in the worst circumstances, he could survive one month without eating after he's been on this high floor for all this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also is visited by Imaguri's ghost, and he feels some debt to her. He feels he's indebted to try and fix this. So he and Baharat, who is also in on doing something to fix things, decide to ride the platform down and make sure that everyone actually gets to eat this time. Based on his calculations, counting how long it takes the thing to go down and come back up, he thinks that there's about 250 floors. Uh, They can probably make it last through all of them. Um, Their plan is to not let the people on the top 50 floors eat because they eat every day, and then to ration things out to the people below them. They do this by fucking busting heads (laughs) They, they bust heads and distribute breads all the way down. It's <laughs> a good. That's a good, um, good phrase. Yeah, that's yeah. the means of production, I guess. <laughs> he, they bust a lot of heads too. Yeah, the people on the top fifty floors are not willing to not eat for a day because they're up here. Why should they not? And eventually, on their way down, they encounter a wise man who Baharat knows, who asks what the point of all this is. 
you know, he's like, oh, this, it's good that you're doing this, but what the fuck does it matter? Nobody's going <laughs> to know anything about it. Uh, you need to send a message. Something that people would eat uh, needs to be protected and go back uneaten so that somebody will get a message, get the message and start asking questions. So they decide that the perfect way to do this is to guard the panna cotta. The panna cotta is the message because it's, it's delicious and fragile. And if it goes back untouched, they will know that something strange has happened. Basically, you need a message. Only bust heads after the dialogue. This man is Mel- Nelson Mandela. Like, that's who he's supposed to be. Yeah. Like, the better. Metaphorical oh, I, Nelson Mandela. They go on this journey and they, they encounter Nelson Mandela and they're like, <laughs> right. Right. Yes, I should know this. <laughs> I should know who this guy is. <laughs> yeah, he's he's very big on the like, extend a hand to them first, talk to them, tell them what's going on, and then hit them if you have to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're like, okay, got it, makes sense. Sure. <laughs> but they soon discover that the elevator doesn't stop on floors where there is nobody alive, so... This thing is actually much deeper than they thought it was. Uh, they they get further down and they find uh, where uh, our femme fatale, um, where Maharu has been. Uh, she is in the middle of a fight with two large men, one of whom brought a katana as his one item. Real samurai plus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although this yeah. dude is white. He's a weeb. Yeah, he's such a he's he is a weeaboo. Like he's... <laughs> I learned the sword <laughs> <laughs> while well, you <she> were fasting. <laughs> yeah, they are not in time to save her from getting stabbed to death. They do proceed to get in a fight with these two guys and almost get themselves stabbed to death. Baharat manages to take care of the guy with the samurai sword and cut the other guy's head off just before he kills Goreng. They get back on the platform, both of them injured and bleeding. Uh, all over the god yeah. <laughs> all over what's left of the food yeah i was i was surprised that the panna cotta made it after they like passed out all, all over this broken glass yeah <laughs> yeah they ride all the way down to the bottom floor which turns out to be floor 333 a number of many great significances none of which are expounded upon in the movie so this is where the platform stops but green sees something here there is a child clearly uh Mahari's lost daughter, uh, who is hiding under the bed. They go to get her, and as soon as they step off, the platform immediately goes further down, stranding them on this floor. The girl is hungry, so Goreng ta- talks them into giving her the panna cotta, even though that is supposed to be the message. Goreng has a dream in which Baharat tells him that the child is the message now, and they need to make sure to get her back up there. But when he wakes up, Baharat is actually bled out and is dead in the night. And the next day when the platform returns, Gring and the child climb on it. He is not doing great. Uh, she seems to be fine. <laughs> Other than being hungry. Yeah. yeah. They lower quite a bit down into a big empty black space uh, where it finally stops just, you know, where they can still see the light. The child has fallen asleep in his lap and uh, Shimagasi's ghost comes to collect Gring. And tells him that, you know, that this this message doesn't actually need anybody to take it. It will serve as a message on its own and walks with him into the darkness, allowing the child to go whirring up on the platform, hundreds of floors in her sleep. And we do not see what happens. That is the end. I'm, I mean, I hope that she survives that very, very rapid ascent. I guess it's going to build. The thing slows as it gets toward the top because... Otherwise, they would just throw plates everywhere when he got to the top. 
right? God. I, so, I uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the end of that incredibly bleak movie. Yes, yes. Guys, what did you think? What do you want to talk about? <laughs> um. Okay, I have a few things. The conceit of this movie is as simple as a logic puzzle, but it is an incredibly effective, terrifying, and emotional movie about human beings and how they who they are and how they are mm-hmm. i was talking about requiem for a dream earlier and i i compare these two movies because they both left me in a similar state this movie did not need the chronos quartet mm-hmm. to remind me how bleak everything was this movie just had some like psychological thriller beat boops mm-hmm. and that's it you know but the thing is that requiem for a dream is a movie where a lot of people have options their their sense of choice is of course subjective to how exactly the context of their situation affects them. It's about a symptom of the capitalism machine. This movie is about the cause Mm -hmm. and all of the horrible shit that happens to those characters in, in movies like Requiem for a dream or, or any of those films where like just people get fucked up by, you know, we live in a society kind of statements. This movie is like, Here's the problem. And you can't really blame. I mean, yeah, there's some assholes here and there's some assholes there. And the real like turning point of this movie is when, you know, we, we see Trimagasi like tie down Grank and he's like about to strip like flesh off of them so they can share it. And you see how in the context of that film later, how reasonable. <laughs> yeah this decision is and that like just through character work is so much more elegant than the kind of heart-wrenching almost gratuitousness of some of these other films that talk about you know we live in a society mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of spectacle there this movie i mean you can argue there's a lot of spectacle and how much like blood and guts there are but if you really think about it like we're not sugarcoating anything here there's nothing that's fantastical about it except yeah. for the way that that platform travels. We don't know how it travels. Like, is it air currents? Is it like ions? I don't know. Is it a magnet? How do yeah. they work? But like, <laughs> yeah, like the the platform has no discernible method of propulsion. Other than that, everything else is very like, this is a brutalist space and here's some prisoners go. For me, I think the the interesting thing is when the movie breaks its own conceit, which is like throughout the first part of the movie, you have Goreng going, yeah, but what if everybody just controlled themselves? Like, what if everybody just cared about the people below them and they only took what they needed and they made sure that everybody else could eat? There's enough people and there's enough food here for everybody to eat. And then like. You know, when he gets this uh, roommate who is, has worked for the company, Imaguri, who is like, yeah, there's, you know, there's 200 floors. Like, feasibly, there's enough food for everybody to eat. We just have to work in solidarity. I think the darkest moment in that is when he wakes up on floor 202 and she has already killed herself. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. she has realized in that moment that, like, her mission is a lie. Like mm-hmm. this concept that there is enough food to feed these people is a lie because like they can blame the people and they do blame the people throughout. But then it turns out that even if those people were performing perfectly, even if they were leaving enough food and just taking what they need, there's still not enough. 
the government yeah. is lying about how many people are there and how much you know food is actually needed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that revelation fucked me up more than anything else because not only are you reliant on the people above you for your survival, but the game is rigged anyway. Even if they yeah. were playing fair by the rules, you're still fucked. So like when when that part hit me, I <laughs> I was sitting alone in the middle of a pandemic where people oh, God. running around with no masks saying like, oh, fuck, why are you being afraid of masks and stuff? And we were still like in the early days where like we didn't know what to do. So things were shut down and you had people like, so I was like, yep, this, I don't know if I'm supposed to glean any hope out of this fucking movie, but that's just the way we are. We can't rely on anyone else. And oh, by the way, the game's fucking rigged anyway. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's so real about it. They mention it in the movie. They show how these characters will go from random floors. So you'll have somebody who has figured it out on floor 48, and then suddenly they're on floor 172. Yeah. is like ready to go. He's like, okay, so I know what to do here. But he doesn't make any, he doesn't expand his thought to anyone around him because like anyone above or below, the fact that it's hard enough for him to manage a situation with him and one other person to survive and it seems really callous and it is but even though he has the experience to be sympathetic he is still incredibly selfish and that is so important because we people who are privileged always expect those noble strugglers before below them to be so like sympathetic because you know once they show sympathy to them right where they're like oh i'm offering you this gift it's the whole savior complex and then we we expect people like when we're trying to level things out economically whatever there is this conceit that oh the people who've been through shit will always understand they will be traumatized they won't be desperate. They will think and act with the clarity that we, the privileged, do. Because we, the privileged, gave them an option to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Like, people can't immediately become woke, so to speak. Like, that's the thing about this movie, is that people will lose hope on a dime. That's true. You know, because when you have a high ideal and you have this way of seeing the world and suddenly it's like there aren't 250 floors. Yeah. There's infinite floors or whatever. Like then everything that you thought you knew is wrong Mm -hmm. and you might as well just collapse right then and there. And your dog is gone. And your dog is gone. (laughs) Your dog. Some bitch killed your dog. (laughs) And, you know, you brought your fucking dog to the fucking can you eat enough trial like come on yeah yeah they turned your sausage dog into sausage yeah yeah god um yeah it's rough the the randomization i think is one of the things that's really interesting to me because it mirrors some of these arguments about healthcare and stuff to me that like people should be sympathetic they should want to make sure that everybody's healthcare is paid for because that is a thing that they could very realistically have to, you know, they could be on that floor next year, you know, next month. Yeah, definitely. They yeah. could be the one that's under the gun. And, and it and it doesn't matter how much you've bought into the system. It doesn't matter how, like how rich you are. 
yeah. one bad day can fuck you up and you're on level 333 and yeah. like and no one gives a shit about you. Yeah. And they're yeah. going to shit in your food and you're going to get broken glass when the platform comes to you. So, hooray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and and it really effectively critiques that conceit that like, oh, if we all know how bad it can be, then we can be better. It points that out too with like no matter how good you are, the system is still rigged. And like, unless yeah. the system is fixed, it doesn't matter yeah. how good you are. Yeah. There's still going to be people that don't get fed. Yeah. Like if the system can tell that you're trying to squirrel something away and will burn you or ice you out, you could implement a system where there's portion things on the platform itself and you can only take what you're allotted. Yeah. But that they don't give a shit. They really don't give a shit. Once you're in the system, who gives a fuck? Yeah. And I also love that this movie doesn't have a moment where they're like, oh, it's a social experiment or whatever. Cause it's, I mean, it's obvious, but yeah. like, it, cause I mean, the, the, the situation is so, I, I like saying elegant because it is muy elegante. Also, is it post apocalyptic? I mean, that, that may be not the best. Well, the, the one, the one scene, we don't where like to see the outside really. You see that one scene where he's talking to what's her face Imaguri about like when she's checking him in the office space is kind of vast and brutalist. So you get the idea that it might be a a future or a near future. Yeah. Yeah. And I was trying to find clues in the opening too, where like they're, they're being so fastidious about the food preparation, but it just looks like, you know, gleaming walls and stuff. Well, they were also the food. Was I don't know if this is like an industrial kitchen thing, but it looked like they had food in all these different like sandblasting cases, mm. Mm. which was weird. Like these weird little containers. Like it reminded me of a um, like a sandblasting case or a like a NICU thing with the gloves. Yes, yes, exactly. Like a hazmat kind of situation, which is also interesting. Yeah, I think like that's one of the th- the preparation too. I think is one of the things that's interesting about it to me is that like they could send enough food and probably spend well definitely spend less money than they do on the food that's there yeah but instead they you know they ask everybody what their favorite food is and they they prep the stuff you know coming in so like our our main character says that he he wants escargot like that's his favorite food so they prep escargot every day and and put it on the the thing along with all these you know desserts this big chocolate cake that goes on there every day yeah all these amazing looking foods it speaks to the bureaucracy of it all because like they could put a check mark seat we're seeing to the needs of the people in the system we're giving them what they want they have the ability to get the thing that they want it's Mm -hmm. not on us that they don't get it we have provided them the ability the chance to get this thing it's their favorite thing and we've provided it for them and we're so fastidious about this like our head chef gets pissed off if something is out of place so so we've checked that we're good we can go on and yeah it, it just oh I hate yeah it checks out on paper yeah and that's yeah that is a litmus test like that you know that you can see that is the the margin of success is that it checks out on paper yeah i, I think Trey Magassi is such an interesting character to me because he feels so real. Yeah. He's a guy who is giving the same sort of justifications of, of like people you know. He is the equivalent of like a, a Fox News watcher, you know. He yeah, sees, yeah. He sees these bad things on TV and he knows the way people are. So that's the way he is. You know, he gives back the same thing that he 
expects to receive from other people. He treats other people the same way he thinks they're going to treat him, not the way that, you know, he wants to be treated. He thinks he must be miserable because of, you know, this this thing that he sees on TV that there's an ad for. So if he just gets the if he can just buy up this thing and have this thing, then you know, his life won't be shit anymore. Yeah. But then there's always another thing, right? Like there's always yeah. the next thing. And I, I think that's really it's really interesting, you know, those those lines about like Oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm just somebody who's afraid, which like is so symptomatic of this like question of of security versus versus liberty versus caring yeah. about people. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Like there, this, there's so many people that justify doing horrible things to other people because they're afraid that other people are going to do horrible things to them. Yeah. And watching this during the pandemic was just way too oh God. Way, I, way too much of a not- <laughs> I mean, I did watch Requiem for a Dream during a pandemic, but that movie was about heroin. <laughs> um, and this is a movie that is about the problem that the heroin is a symptom of. So, yeah. like I, I should not have watched it. I, fuck you, Netflix. <laughs> hey. You got me. But you had the choice. I did have the choice. I you did. had the choice is an illusion. I could I have been know. watching Squid Game. Which is another thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this one is it's funny because it's like there's not really jump scares in this, you know, that's not scary in that way. Yeah. But like as I was doing the like trigger warnings for this, I was like, oh yeah. There's <laughs> violence, there's gore, there's cannibalism, there's suicide, there's nudity, there's on-screen defecation and urination. Yeah. There's in their discussions of and implications of sexual assault and rape there's racism there's islamophobia and i was like oh and there's all the suicide yeah yeah and a tinnitus give them give this shit a solid tinnitus warning because you need it the very beginning scene i was like oh dear Ugh. oh and the 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 food the the audio of the food like when they're eating it's just so like oh yeah you have that moist and just like yeah it just it's just it's a audible visceral experience. Like every time they're grabbing food, it's just like, it's yeah. It's, there's a lot of mouth sounds. Yeah. And I know just, some people are not into that. Well, it's like yeah. whatever the opposite of ASMR is it's just like, ugh. especially Chumagasi. Every time he is getting into the food, like, especially that first time that Goreng is watching him yeah. eat this clearly already eaten food. Yeah. And like, he's just like sucking the marrow out of the bones and yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. a desperate sound. And by the end of the movie, you get it. But like those first couple of times, you're like, what the fuck is going on, man? <laughs> like, What's happening? Yeah. The expansion of context is so effective with just these very small bits of information. Like there's another floor that they didn't think about. And it wasn't, it didn't ever get that much more messy. Like there wasn't any extra shit that showed up. It's not like some Death Note shit where they're like, Oh, and now you have all these rules about how you can death note somebody. Like, this is the same thing. There are these circumstances and everything else is up to you. And that's your fault. Yeah. Implicitly, right? So motherfucker volunteered for this shit. Oh my God. Yeah. But that's another thing is that, you know, they didn't know what the fuck that was. Yeah. You know, they quote unquote opted in, but nobody knows exactly what they're opting in for. Like if if you go to this place and you're like, okay, so I have to stay in a, in here for six months. So sure. Eat. Okay. And or not. Cool. And then you wake up and you're like, 
oh, there's a cannibalism happening. <laughs> this is this isn't cool. This isn't like sexy cannibal cannibalism too. <laughs> like cannibals like sexy. There was a bit where Imogiri was talking about how well both her and Trimagasi were talking about like how their bodies and their flesh are sacred and I think it was Trimagasti was saying that like now that you've eaten of me I am part of you forever and all this kind of stuff and then there was like the, the parallel made with the communion and and all that and the sacrifice that Imogiri made like the fact that she left her body was you know he was thinking like was it a gift to me so I didn't have to starve yeah you know what am I supposed to do with this information <laughs> etc and then remembering like wasn't it cute when Hannibal ate the rude and now you think like no <laughs> no he's the one percent yeah yeah <laughs> all, that, all that preparation you know That's yeah that makes it edible but yeah they, they don't pull away from the the cutting and the eating in this movie they're very like uh in your face about it it's so good and it's so rough the opting in thing is interesting because i think in that way it sort of reminds me of like debt and you know the fact that he's getting a uh, a degree out of it i think mm-hmm. is important in that respect that you yeah. know you you opt into debt thinking oh this is going to be an easy thing where i yeah. just you know you get this small amount and i have to you know pay it off in this time and it'll be easy because i'll have a degree after this and then like you just get sucked into this system where you know you could get pulled down to <laughs> you can get pulled down to floor 202 at any time yeah and I don't think he, you know, I don't think anybody who opted in knew that. Right. And honestly, they could have been told something like, yeah, so there's a bunch of floors and there's a certain amount of food and it goes down the floors and it's fine. You know, and that's the thing is it's it's so simple and it sounds simple, just like advertising jargon, the the kind that tricked Trimagasi, where it's like, it's that simple. You just stay alive. Yeah. Hang out. You have a bathroom. You have you have a sink. Mm-hmm. I think that the one thing I, I didn't really mention, which I think plays into the end a bit, is that you know, Emigiri tells him like, oh, there's no kids here. There are never any kids here. Under 16s are not allowed. So like the, the fact that they have this kid and they send her up at the end, you know, it, it should trigger the idea that there is something wrong. That like this kid yeah. should not be here. But it, but, you know, it's not going to make a difference. Like, you know that if they did a sequel to this movie, it's just the same movie. They they just give you a ticket for the first movie and you walk right into because like, you know, this is not going to make a difference. They're going to be like, oh, how'd you get there? And it'll be a blip. And then you go right back to it. And that. Yeah, that's the part. At least that's the way I interpreted it, because I was in a bad headspace when I saw this. <laughs> I mean, but I it could very well be that it could be. I think it's important that it's open ended because like that's really the the hope that there is. Is it like maybe the next person will figure it out? Yeah. You know? Maybe. Hopefully, whoever, like whoever gets this, whoever whoever cleans up the platform when it comes back at the end of the day is not the administration. There's somebody who is, you know, a regular worker who knows that there's not supposed to be 16 year olds in here. It's going to do something, hopefully, to cause a fuss about it. But you know, letting them know, sending them a message is the best they can do. You know, mm-hmm. the people in the prison do not have the ability to really communicate with the outside world this is this is the most they could possibly have done yeah yeah and that's like the fucked up thing is jamie you, su- you suggested 
the reason that there is a kid here is that this kid has lived their entire life here. Yeah. That that Miharu had her kid here. And I don't know if, I mean, that kid looks a few years old. So, you know, who knows how long they actually were there. Who knows what the circumstances were. But there's no way that the administration didn't know that there was somebody there. Mm-hmm. Because their every room is obviously monitored because how else would they know that someone's still like hiding food away right you know and, um, and the platform stops if there's a person there so they yeah there's, there's a person there yeah if, if there's and they don't clean up the bodies so you know at least as far as we know yeah that was the thing that was the thing they didn't touch on for that i wondered about is like in between the months there is some number of people whose job it is to wheel out the unconscious people, dispose of all the dead bodies, and then wheel them back into whatever route yeah. they're going to be in for this month. Yeah, um, there could be a there could be like a full week that they're asleep, that they get switched yeah. out and stuff. Like the passage of time is a lie in this entire thing. Yeah, you have no idea how long you've been in there. And here's a question. There's a bit where Goreng is making tick marks on the wall. What is he counting? He's counting the floors. He's trying to figure out how okay. long it takes. That's he right. how long it takes the, the platform to, to come down to his room and then to leave. And then he makes a tick for every every floor after that that he thinks it's, you know, he, he counts the number of times, which is why he thinks there's 250 floors. But, you know, then they that moment that they go to a floor that both people are dead and the elevator just keeps going. It's just and and like. You know, his, his roommate says, like, oh, it doesn't stop when there's nobody there. That means there's a lot more floors than we thought there were. And, <laughs> like, we have no idea what we're doing, what yeah. we're getting ourselves into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I that that whole bit was in the midst of that, like, psychotic break montage that I was like, <laughs> how how long is he there? Yeah. But, yeah, now it now makes sense. Thank Ugh. you. This is why you need to talk to somebody about this movie. If any yeah. of you... <laughs> If any of you, you two especially, but if fans on the Twitter have a movie that you need us to talk about, but you can't like be a guest or whatever, just hit me up. I'll watch a movie as long as it's not dumb or horrible. Like when I say horrible, I mean like, you know, racist or whatever, like actually racist, you know, not talking about how racism is bad, but you know, you know what I mean? I hope you'll find out. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that there is racism in this movie and it's, interesting the way it is shown because it is sort of acknowledged people say racist things nobody really makes a point of stopping them and going hey that's racist but like the movie's just like nope that's the way, these, that's the way this dude is this yeah. dude is racist yeah and it keeps going i also feel like goring doesn't want to challenge a guy with a knife on his racism <laughs> uh, yeah but i mean like it's interesting how racism is used in a lot of these uh, situations because usually it is like an ad hominem or just someone in in like the midst of desperation these people who are incredibly upset and disillusioned and they're like well i guess i might as well be racist about this yeah Yeah, because there's the bit where they're going down the on the platform with bahara and doing the food you know season the means of production well season the means of distribution and then one of the guys that they're trying to police away from the food so to speak sorry for using that term is uh is trying to use racism to manipulate them 
Yeah. So maybe in a better time, it's a good time. Maybe when the sun is out, you should watch this movie. (laughs) Yeah. But not when it's 118 degrees. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not when you're frying. (laughs) Don't don't watch this movie when you're like your body, your your soul is actively trying to crawl out of your body just so it can breathe for a second. Don't watch it then. That's when you watch Steven Universe. <laughs> At least dissociation is fun and rainbow colored when you're watching Steven, Steven Universe. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think this movie is incredible. I think, you know, you you guys did obviously mention Requiem for a Dream. It's it's one of those that it's like, you can't just watch this one whenever. You have to be prepared for what's coming for you because it's it's heavy. And when you hear, like the goofy concept of it the, there's a platform that distributes you know food to all the floors of this prison it's got to be you know ham-fisted and dumb right mm-hmm. um and like it is amazing how how effective it actually ends up being yeah um, i i really like how you framed it emily as a logic problem like it's it's one of those classic logic problems like oh you can logic your way out of this no <laughs> no it's more complicated than that yeah and that is the the long and the short of it, I think, in terms of that that conversation, this is a situ- situation that is so complicated and so fucked from the beginning that every way out is going to require a sacrifice. And you know, is it worth it? it it's so interesting to me the way this movie gives a premise and then denies the premise, which is like you come in with this idea that like, oh, this is a movie about how people are terrible. And how if you could just coordinate people to work together and, you know, care about each other, then everything would be fine. But the reality is the deck is stacked from the beginning. And like this idea that if we just all work together and did the right thing is the trap. The real trap is thinking it's the other people's fault because, you know, yeah. the government, the administration and, this, you know, they say in this one is, is lying to you about what the problem is. And they are the ones pulling the strings. And you you can't possibly know that until it's too late for you. You've lost. Yeah. As soon as you sign that paper, you've lost. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you do. It really doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. Maybe if you only had a month stint, but also you've lost. <laughs> and it's crazy because like you think about it and you think about these people opting in and you're like, well, they had a choice. It was an illusion. You know, you could still say like, oh, it's their fault for opting into this. The real problem, we don't have a choice. Like, that's the thing is, you know, you're born into the system and it's not until you really understand. And like, it's really easy to to lose hope once you realize like how fucked up it is, you know, and that's where you get characters like Trimagasi, mm-hmm. who's like, I thought this way. I thought that way. I thought f- 15 different ways. This is how it is. This is what I got to do. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. Other than just being casually racist. You don't have to be casually racist. Yeah. <laughs> no one's forcing yeah. you to be casually racist. You I know, this movie is interesting in that it, what you take away from it is so sensitive to when you're watching it. Cause you know, Jamie's talking about watching it to the height of the pandemic and don't do you know, that. Seeing, <laughs> seeing what people are, are doing in real life. And I'm watching this now, you know, for the second time, but still like, at the height of us discussing student debt and like, oh, should you, you know, should these people have to to pay for these other, you know, these other people's debts? And I think the question of somebody like Goreng, who 
volunteered to go into this really resonates with the student debt question because it's like, mm-hmm. well, of course, you know, people are going to look at, you know, people with student debt and say, well, like, well, they chose to do that. They volunteered to go into debt. Why should I have to pay for for their thing? You know, I, I think the fact that he gets a degree when he comes out of it, I think is is really it's really hitting that button because you're like, well, that is how it works with student debt is you you sign up for this immense cost thinking, you know, oh, well, I'm going to get a degree out of it and that's going to everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be that yeah. bad. Yeah. And it's, it's not not actually that simple once you get there. I mean, it's the metaphor is so perfect for all of those different systems within the big problem like the student debt and healthcare and like civil engineering or you know social structure the whole thing yeah it's like x-men the metaphor is whatever you want it to be yeah Yeah, it it could be everything and unfortunately this movie is going to be way too relevant for way too long yeah Yeah. (laughs) the other thing though is that like a message was sent that's true yeah yeah there was a message i've been going back and forth on this it is ultimately like the cruelest thing or the kindest thing, depending on on where you stand, that the movie cuts without like you finding out what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it uh it made me feel even worse, but that's because I was watching it when I was. <laughs> so if you like this movie, watch Cosmos. Because don't worry, it won't matter. <laughs> Just don't be casually racist and don't shit on people. There's a toilet. Yeah. Or there's a mound. Let them climb a rope. They're not going to get anywhere anyway. Don't don't shit on people's food. Yeah. Don't shit on other people. Shit in the places that are assigned for shit, please. Yeah. And if someone else says that you shouldn't shit there, now we're getting complicated, and that's much more complicated (laughs) than this. I mean, I I message. I, I sent what I felt like was an important tweet during watching the uh, wrestling pay-per-view this weekend, which was, uh, it doesn't matter what your wrestlers, what your favorite wrestlers do, don't spit on people. That's not nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't spit on people. Yeah, don't spit on people. It's a bad example. <laughs> don't spit on people. Don't shit on people. Don't put on people's food. Yeah. yeah. We've talked pretty heavily about how uh, class is discussed in this. Um, and- so it's about class? <laughs> Yeah. What yeah. class? Like science? <laughs> right. Uh, it's classics, actually. Um, the classics. <laughs> the classics. Yeah. It's all about Don Quixote. Yeah, Don Quixote. Oh, no. Oh, he's so self-deluded fighting at windmills that, like, yeah. one in here is so self-deluded that they can actually fight through the... Oh, fuck. Yeah. Oh, my God. I never really fuck considered why... Me. Why it was Don Quixote. Oh, it's... uh. Yeah, well, the second they were like, Don Quixote, and I'm like, all right. God damn. Okay, movie. God damn it, movie. Well, maybe a part of me that was like, I have also never read Don Quixote, and it's because it's fucking huge. So like, <laughs> yeah. Every time I've thought I'd really like to have read Don Quixote, I look at it and I go, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. The concept of that book and the concept of the character of Don Quixote is enough that we need yeah. to understand. Yeah. You know, it's like Moby Dick. Like we understand. Yeah. You know, if you actually read that book, that book is mostly about. The how whaling happens. It's a lot but, of a oh, lot of that man really talking about all the stuff he learned about whales. Yeah, even though they still <laughs> say a lot about whales in the whole book, they say that they're fish. <laughs> <laughs> but that's pedantry. 
because at the time a fish was a thing that swims. Hooray. And we didn't have like a scientific fucking kingdom of fish. <laughs> anyway, is this movie feminist? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh like it does it does show a variety of of different female perspectives in this story because you you know, you have Imaguri who's this person who's trying to fix the system who is deluded and does not know it like we don't we don't know it at the time but yeah. it becomes clear that she is she is trying she has learned that she has nothing to lose so she has decided she might as well go down trying to fix something yeah um, and then you know sometimes sometimes women can be you know, platform murderers and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes women can shit on people like you know yeah yeah yeah. I don't know. I don't think it really has a lot to say about feminism because I think of one of the things about this movie is really important is that everybody is there. Everybody that they can think of. You have a variety of races and and creeds. We assume that there are Muslims because someone's Islamophobic. So, you know. I mean, given that it theoretically is, I mean, it's happening in Spain, there are a lot of people who seem to be immigrants or from an immigrant family. Mm -hmm. um you know who, who are not necessarily ethnically spanish yeah there's there's a certain amount of diversity in the languages too because there was not just spanish there was french there was um italian yeah we see a whole bunch of different people too on there yeah today. Okay. i did want to mention the one thing that did kind of irritate me feminism wise is there is for some reason one dream sequence in which after meeting our Haru. yeah he dreams about them having sex in which this, you know, she as a character is, is topless for in this scene, which is completely beside the point of the rest of the movie and completely unneeded. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It, it felt out of place in the movie for me. And, uh, you know, especially considering the generally good job this movie does of not being like, they're sexy prisoners. <laughs> like, yeah, women are just as dirty as the men in this movie. Yeah, yeah, they're all filthy for the most part. Yeah, the only other nudity we get is him and him and Shimagasi, uh nude stretching on their opposite sides of the bed. Which is there's there's that one sequence like after they get to know each other and be friends for a little bit on you know floor forty whatever it is they stirred on that it's like it's kind of funny. Like, oh yeah, where they're like doing a little dance. Yeah. yeah, and and then you know they go down to the one seventies, and it immediately gets grim. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will say that the the classic you know woman making out with you in a dream becomes dog licking your face joke was a bit of a wild decision for this film, <laughs> but everything else was so fucking intense that I was like, oh, that happened. Okay, why is the dog here? Yes, why? Like, I immediately was like. Is this feminine? Why is a dog? <laughs> Why did you bring your... Why did you bring your dog? <laughs> I automatically don't like you. I don't care how fucking idealistic you are or how right you are. You brought your dog. A weird moment of sneaking tits into the movie for no reason for me. <laughs> yeah. You can get across this idea that he's having a dream about her without necessarily like her just needing to be topless in his dream scene. Like yeah. it, it does yeah. it doesn't fit. Yeah. If they can if they can get away with not having titty and Earth Girls are easy, then they can get away with not having titty in this movie. 
there was a lot of topless Jeff Goldblum in that movie. I'm sorry, I'm reaching for Scott anything. <laughs> don't don't slut shame for Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Goldblum got topless in Jurassic Park. Like fantastic. <laughs> he was call for that, but he's down. He was injured. Uh, we'll be like... talking about the fly soon. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> that fly has. Lots of unnecessarily naked Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I don't know if that's unnecessary. Okay. Can we not? <laughs> he is the grandmaster. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Goldblum has no problem getting naked. Yeah. I And good for him. Yeah. I mean, at that time of his life, I would. I'd be like, sure. <laughs> if, if you were a 20-year-old Jeff Goldblum, you would get naked too, huh? Oh, mm-hmm. my God. If if I was a 20-year-old Jeff Goldblum, a memoir. <laughs> it's me. It's me Are naked you there, God? All day long. <laughs> it's me. I want to be naked 20-year-old Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> Are you there, God? It's, uh, uh, it's, uh, it, well. It's, uh, 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 a 20, uh, 20-year-old naked Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> and there, there it is. Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. <laughs> my penis. There it is. There's there's my dick. And you have uh twenty five gill and a magic fire ring <laughs> for your it, dick. You know the one thing uh that is missing from the diversity of this movie is there's not any sort of discussion of LGBTQ people at all. Yeah, no, it's just not a thing. But the fact that. There is a straight couple having sex, and they are the worst. <laughs> yes. The, so, the couple but, or five is the fucking worst. Yeah, they're fucking. The, okay, yeah, they're fucking the worst, and they are the worst fucking. So maybe by contrast, knowing that some month in the future they will probably eat each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope he practices though. Then this movie's feminist. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sorry. Uh, they're not going to last. Whatever, however many months they're they're in there, they're not going to last. No, no, they're the worst. Alicia, this is your. This is where you edit. No, and that opens. Because I uh, have a question for you. <laughs> How long do you think someone can live by by eating pussy that long? I feel like I need to explain some things to you, Emily. <laughs> uh, nah. I mean, uh, that's presumptuous, but sure. I mean, you're suggesting somebody could live off of eating pussy. I don't. There I mean, I've seen Castle I've seen Castle Freak. <laughs> so, that is a a literal thing that happens in Castle Freak. Do they survive on it though? No. Fuck! I had that movie's on my list. It just went to the top. He just misunderstands. <laughs> um, oh, I see. I. I would not put that movie at the top of the list. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's very, very B-horror, you know, but it is also like, that is a thing that happens in it. Jeremy, do I need to remind you that how much I've been talking about and reading Berserk recently? That is a movie that introduces prostitutes as characters to get killed. Because you need characters to die in a horror movie, so they introduce some prostitutes. Okay. Um, so like demons, not unlike demons, yeah, yeah, in in that in a very similar way. Anyway, so we yeah. talked about yeah, there was the no no LGBTQIA plus representation to be found. 
unless you count the fact that the straight people having sex are the worst. And then, therefore, by contrast, everyone else is better. But that is a stretch that I think Ben would be proud of. <laughs> yeah, you did mention that there is a, a guy who appears to be developmentally disabled that they meet when they're going down the elevator. He does seem to be, in addition to being developmentally disabled, a sociopath or a psychopath. Yeah. He does say that he will kill people anyway, even if, you know, he does get food. He's uh, not beyond murdering people, which is a questionable choice in this movie. Yeah. I mean, like, like if someone who was not representing a minority would said something like that, there's a possibility that he's just being real, but still he's, he's also representing a minority in this film, which is yeah. great. Yeah. So, you know, like, like again, a stretch, but also, you know, bad move. Yeah. Imho, my <laughs> humble opinion. Yeah. So, I mean, that really that wraps up as far as the talking points here are concerned. Would you guys say that this is a movie that people should check out? Under the right circumstances, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's it's like the, the Darren Aronofsky stuff where you're like, okay, put on your seatbelt. Yeah. Keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle. Yeah. It is unquestionably a good movie. Yeah. It is a rough movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'll I think it'll sit with you. And of course, that's the point. But yes, I I think it's worth seeing. Like, I, I don't regret seeing it. It did fuck Same. me up for a very long time. But I, yeah. I, I do not regret the experience. Actually, I would definitely recommend it if you have if, if hereditary fucked you up and you want something to make hereditary feel less bad. Hereditary uh, bothers me more than this one. But well, hereditary bothers me. But at least with hereditary, I can pick it apart. Like, at least it's like, this, this is dumb with demons and stuff, and it did these bad things, and I'm, I'm mad about it. This movie is like, yeah, wow, yeah, wow, yeah, yeah, ow, ow. Why That's did... a gut punch for sure. Yeah. Like, oh, hold on. It's more of a good stab, and then he's going to twist a knife. And... <laughs> if you're feeling too positive about the way things have been going, watch this movie. <laughs> Again, if you need to talk to somebody about a movie, hit us up. Hit me up on Twitter. You both, please, you know how to get a hold of me. I'm saying I can be your bro and help you talk about the movie <laughs> and either agree or disagree or at least help you be remind you that it, it is a movie and we can talk about the decisions made in the story that was told that is definitely not the very, very real situation that we all have to deal with every day of our lives that we don't opt into. I didn't Absolutely. opt into. So, I mean, with that in mind, what do you guys recommend? What should people check out this week? There's a movie series called Cube. There's Cube, Hypercube, and then Cube 3. Cube is also another logic problem type movie. It takes place in a, in a box. There are six portholes on either side. You can actually open the door and go to the next cube. There are traps. They're death traps. And, and so, like, these people are put in this cube... And they have to figure out how to get through the traps and stuff. So it's essentially the same situation where you have one environment and the entire movie takes place in this one environment. The way they film it, I think that the way they filmed it, they had actually two cubes just because they had to shoot into to one or the other for right. certain scenes. But it's it's a character piece. There's there are eventually six characters and it's how they interact with each other. But it's very similar in that like 
you don't necessarily know who set up these cubes. You don't know anything beyond the world outside. You don't know if this is like a post-apocalyptic kind of thing. So the first one I thought was a really tight one. The second one sort of takes a more sci-fi spin on it. And then the third one is kind of like a prequel-ish to kind of explain more of the world. And it's just, it has all the things that I love. It has bureaucracy and hopelessness you love and, bureaucracy and and like things I like to comment on, like terrible bureaucracy. Oh, yes, okay. And death traps, death, tra death and traps, death traps, um, and cubes, and cubes. So it's it's more of a personality study, so you can kind of separate yourself from these characters. Whereas like the platform, it's it's a comment on society. The first cube movie, all the characters are named after prisons in the U.S., and Shit. so their their personalities reflect the prison like what those prisons are known for so it's a it is a com it is sort That's of like cool. a social commentary on the prison system but you have to dig into like you had to watch you had to read an imdb to figure that shit out right like you know so it's it's lighter than this movie but it, it has some of the same things in it that i really appreciated about this one so yeah the cube series first nice. one's the best the the other two are not as good but you know they're fun the cube the third cube movie is cube cubes right is that what they call it i think so okay i I'm hope just making, so i don't remember i remember hypercube hypercube was dumb but it was fun. yeah yeah <laughs> essentially yeah if you really want to think about how we live in a society but you want your your the grotesqueness of that commentary to be a little bit more artsy and a little bit less real there's a movie just came out on shutter called mad god and it's basically like, we live in a society and look at all these models. It is a visual feast. There is kind of a point. <laughs> what it says about that society is it's fucked. And then what? Ugh. Make art about it. That's cool. I mean, that's not the, the message. That's just what happened to make this movie happen. It's really cool, though, if you're a fan of monsters and if you're a fan like, of, of imagery and vibe and, and just like crazy prop work and weird hallucinatory symbolic storytelling. Like me? I would recommend it. It's definitely don't do drugs to it. It's too much. You don't <laughs> need drugs for this movie. Just watch it. Just watch it and be like, that sure was a lot of stuff they pulled out of that guy who is <laughs> sort of claymation. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the the images on the on the internet right now it looks it looks amazing i mean the good things visually it is fantastic narratively i mean it's what i like which <laughs> is question mark but uh, i feel like if you listen to this podcast you know now right yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean i like things that make sense too but the, this is one of those things where i feel like it's so weird that it speaks directly to me and then I can whisper back to it in my dreams and we can have a conversation ourselves that nobody else is privy to. And that is why I love this movie in my own way. And uh, we can have our own hypercube and live there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, as for me, I was a little divided on what to recommend on this because there's things that like, I feel like, yeah, more like this. Also, after this, I need something a lot lighter. But like, <laughs> on the front of if you want more things like this, can I introduce you to Bong Joon-ho? There you go. Yeah. Both Snowpiercer is very much like this in that it is a weirdly on-the-nose metaphor 
for humans that like deals with the same kind of stuff, including cannibalism. Mm-hmm. And Parasite <laughs> is the much more like real world version of this. Uh, oh God, yeah. Well, Parasite is like this. But <laughs> what if this were more hopeless? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, what if what if we didn't have the fun sci-fi element here? Yeah. Um, oh God. Oh. Yeah, the fun I'll sci-fi go- element of a platform that moves without any discernible yeah propulsion yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh, is the fun sci-fi that's, that's of the this sci-fi. movie yeah <laughs> there but are ghosts it has a it has a weird high concept but if if you want something that is also a weirdly on the nose metaphor but is a little more fun you'll come away a little bit happier after seeing how much they live <laughs> um, god <laughs> They live is also a weirdly on the nose metaphor that is pulled off in the the most John Carpenter of ways. <laughs> it is so much of what it is. It stars Keith David and Rowdy Rowdy Piper in the main roles. That's all you fucking um, need, man. Yeah. Oh my god! And it's about it's a like... cool magical pair of sunglasses that let you see <laughs> capitalism for what it really is. Yeah, uh, we've got to cover that movie on here at some point. I yeah. fucking love They Live. So good. That movie is like, you know how in The Simpsons. Mr. Burns can't afford Steven Spielberg, so he gets like the closest equivalent to Steven Spielberg. This movie is like if that to John Carpenter and John Carpenter work <laughs> together on a movie. <laughs> like he, it was like multiplicity or whatever, but it was the like the dumb clone. <laughs> they live feels like somebody was writing a script and they put in a lot of things that are like. I'll go back and change this to something better later. And then they never did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let it, it ride. Let it ride. Yeah. It. yeah. And it, what, what result is a movie that like I saw when I was eight and like <laughs> just got its hook in my brain and stayed there for the rest of my life. I mean, it got its hook in Shepard Fairey's brain. Let me be real about that. Like if it, without, without that movie, we would not have Shepard Fairey. Also has a really, unnecessarily long alley fight scene which uh, I, I feel like you can just find on youtube if you just want to see <laughs> rowdy rowdy piper and keith lee or keith david fight in an alley Listen, for about 10 minutes <laughs> that movie is worth it just for keith david like just watch it for keith david because i was like I, I didn't realize it was him until like halfway through the movie mm. i watch it for rowdy piper baby. too because his rowdy piper acts a lot <laughs> <laughs> he's not the best actor he is maybe the most actor <laughs> he, he really comes he really comes from that wrestling background like you can really feel it in the way he delivers everything um, <laughs> i i for one love it i feel like he's delivering every line about like half a second on the wrong <laughs> like just a half a second too soon or too late like at an unexpected level of excitement (laughs) yeah like a completely inappropriate delivery like you know he he wants to be fucking snake bliskin so hard and then you know but he's just like i got gun (laughs) aliens bad i came here was that that was in shit before that movie right no that was that was that movie no, I came here to chew bubble gum and to kick ass. Yeah, that's from that fucking movie. I have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass. 
all out of bubble gum. Oh, and I'm all out of bubble gum. Yep. That's where I've always known it from. Okay. Okay. I mean, like, it's such a line that I'm like, does that really come from They Live? Like, I need uh, to see the, I need to see the family tree <laughs> of this. Where's the missing, is, is, where's the missing link? There's got to be a missing link. Man. Before. Saskatoon, Canada's own Rowdy Rowdy Saskatoon. Piper. Saskatoon. Saskatoon, motherfucker. We miss you, Roddy. Gone too soon. Yeah. 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 Watch they live, guys. And before we before we wrap up, uh, Jamie, can you uh, remind people where they can find out more about you and, and your work and all of our all of the uh, images you're doing our characters as various Power Rangers right now? <laughs> so you can find me on Spotify. I just released a new single, which is about eating <laughs> sushi. Instagram, Jamie Noguchi. Twitter, Angry Zen Master. If you're hearing this in the month of September, I do this art challenge called Toku Timber, where I draw tributes to Super Sentai and Kamen Rider and Kaiju and all that kind of stuff. This this year, I'm drawing all of the characters from School for Extraterrestrial Girls wearing like all the Sixth Ranger costumes as like fashion. Good. So yeah, so follow me on Twitter. I, I'm posting most of those on Twitter. So nice. And I think uh, when this comes out, it'll actually be just the beginning of october so okay well never mind <laughs> well you can, you'll be able to see all of them you can just go enjoy them all right now yeah i'll be there you can see them uh if i've done enough of them i'm gonna probably do like a a video that's a super cut of all of them and then maybe that's my plan if i can get through them all <laughs> fantastic well I, I i know i'm enjoying them i look forward to them as for the rest of us you can find emily at megamoth on twitter and at mega underscore moth on instagram and at megamoth.net Ben is not here, but you can still get a hold of them at Ben McCon and on their website at BenConComics.com where you can pick up all of their books. Emily, you had something? No, I was just looking at the trails for my camera. <laughs> I can't have my lights on. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Y'all, I got an emergency alert from uh, the government of California telling us we have to turn our lights off because it's 118 degrees outside. <laughs> Lord. Oh. Only eat what you can eat. Uh, <laughs> fuck. And finally, for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jrum 58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com, where you can check out everything I write. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified, on our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm, and on Twitter at pronghorrorpod, where we'd love to hear from you. Come, come tell us where that quote is actually from. If we've gotten it wrong and Please. come talk to Emily about all the movies that traumatize you. Yes. Um, and also wherever you're listening to this, we would love it. If you give us a five-star review just so uh, we can reach more people, more people can hear about this uh, podcast and get out there. Uh, thank you again to Jamie for joining us. It was a ball as always. Thanks for having thank me, you, Jamie. It's always, yes. What Jeremy said. And this was our, this is our last episode when it's coming out of Hispanic heritage month. It's also our first episode of Scary Movie Month, where we'll be talking about sci-fi movies all October. So, uh, you know, come back next time. We're talking about Event Horizon. We're talking about Prometheus. We're talking about, speaking of John Farabitter, The Thing. So, <laughs> about time we finally got to that movie. For uh, real. It's going to be a ball. October is going to be great. And then in uh, November, we have some really troubling things planned. don't say yeah. that don't say that <laughs> well it's it's crow we're gonna be we're gonna be watching some bro 
It's all the crow movies. Oh We're my god! All the crow movies. All the all our <laughs> Cronenberg movies. The Cronenberg movies. Yeah, I would oh, not subject anyone to anything but the first crow movie. Which is a perfect film. <laughs> not, we're not going to watch the one where David Boreanaz is the devil? I think Jordana oh. Brewster is in one of those. Jordana I, Brewster of Fast and Furious fame. I I think sure. I'm in one of those. <laughs> I might as well be in one of those. <laughs> I will edit. I will find every copy and edit myself being like, stop. Don't do this. <laughs> Why? <laughs> but due respect to the actors involved. Yes. Maybe. I mean, dep- unless they're racist, then I'm like, hmm. <laughs> okay <laughs> alright thanks again for everybody listening until next time stay horrified and cool <laughs> stay cool yeah progressively horrified is created by Jeremy Whitley and produced by Alicia Whitley this episode featured Jeremy Emily and Jamie Noguchi all opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and do not represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentator. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. If you like this episode, support us on Patreon. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at ProgHorrorPod or by email at ProgressivelyHorrified at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.